This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine, and this is episode 104. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host. Later on in the podcast, digital editor catches up with Maurizio Lopez, head chef of Bolivian restaurant Gusto, to talk about new Bolivian cuisine. Mauricio shares his favourite ingredients to cook with, including llama, Amazonian herbs and the largest freshwater fish in the world. But first up, I went to meet chef and fish expert Mitch Tonks to find out how to make responsible, sustainable choices when buying seafood. Okay, so I'm here today with Mitch Tonks, um, chef, restaurateur and the um, ambassador for the MSC, which is the Marine Stewardship Council. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's great. (laughs) Um, We've just had a really interesting breakfast and chat um, all about sustainable fish, uh, what we can do about it, um, how we can get involved in it more. And um, first of all, could you just explain what sustainability means? Um, because I think people, a lot of people think it's just, is there enough fish in the sea? But it's not just that, is it? It's, just, it's, it's interesting. It's become a really, really important subject. And sustainability in the marine environment means that you can safely take uh, an amount of fish from the sea and uh, leave enough in the ocean to be able to reproduce so that we can continually um, take the fish that we need for food and at the same time um, allow the marine environment to not be damaged in a way that it can't sustain and support uh, future marine life. Yeah. So it's quite a task um, to be able to fish and not damage and yeah. take enough and uh, and it's it's a lot of work goes into making so sure that So it involves the methods of fishing as well as just it how involves, much fish you take? Yes, it involves a method of fishing. And, you know, un- unfortunately, there are certain methods of fishing that are destructive. Yeah. And, um, but they're managed and contained. And they, you know, adds another element to the debate. But without using heavy methods to catch certain species, we wouldn't have those species. And I think that'll be a, that's a future debate about how we catch them. So there's not... I mean, there are, I guess there are certain methods that are, are not great... You know, there's huge, gigantic super trawlers and stuff. We're not talking about that, are we? We're talking no. about... We're talking about heavy impact fishing where, where guys are using nets and beams along the shore. Right. And, uh, you know, they damage the seabed, but they catch the fish that the market needs and that we need for yeah. um, uh, for foodstuffs. Um, but the MSC looks at those, but doesn't certify a fishery based upon fishing method. They, they look at the capture method. Okay. And, uh, but really the MSC is certifying a fishery as sustainable yeah. uh, based upon the scientific data um, that they're able to collect on that fishery about a certain species and to give uh, fishermen conditionality on how they can fish that going forward and audit it. Yeah. Um, to make sure the fishermen are fishing in a certain way. And it's a fantastic scheme. Yeah. And uh, it really, you know, when you see the blue label um, in the supermarkets on our cod and our haddock, the white species that we love, then it's great to be able to buy those with confidence and know that they're coming from a sustainably sustainable fishery. And the idea of the MSC is that it's, it's visibility, isn't it? Because you can, it, there is a, a small blue label with a fish and a tick yeah and that tells you that that and it's quite i think it's is a quite a complicated pro- process to become 
certified, a certified fishery. It's massive. I mean, <laughs> the undertaking on the, um, on the fishermen is, is huge and it's hugely cost, you know, cost them a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, we've had some amazing success stories because I think one of the things is that, I'll give you an example of the Hake fishery in Cornwall, okay. whereby 10 years ago I used to be on the market in Hake, which was... Um, a fish that we kind of didn't really eat that much. The Spanish ate it. We tried to sell it to the Spanish, but the fish would be landed in pretty poor condition. It wouldn't fetch very much money. Yeah. And there was really no incentive for fishermen to go and catch it because yeah. it was only fetching, you know, 50, 60, 70 p a kilo. Some very enterprising fishermen in Cornwall and Devon um, with their boats uh, realised it was a market, realised it was a, was a fabulous fish. And they set about changing their gear to catch it and look after it properly mm. and land it in really good condition. They went one step further to um, get MSC certification. Okay. And what that's opened up for them is a market to us chefs whereby we can now buy that fish knowing it's sustainable yeah. and also it's opened the door to supermarkets. So the price has gone up, yeah. which is great for the fishermen because that's the incentive. And Hake's always been a great it. fish, hasn't it? It's, it's just always the... been a great fish. It's just that we've never... You know, my grandmother used to talk about Hake yeah. as being, you know, this luxurious white fish, which yeah, of course yeah, it yeah, is. But, probably... and, and interestingly, I remember walking around Swansea Market and I'd see lots of Hake in Wales. Yeah. The, the, the Welsh have always loved it. Yeah. And uh, But we've never loved it, but now it's back firmly on our menus. I just remember always getting it in Spain. It was like you'd go to Spain it's and the national they would fish. have Hake. Yeah. The national fish. I mean, you know, the other great... You know, in, in, in northern Spain, the, yeah. the tongues, the, the neck, you know, yeah. the, the cheeks, you know. I mean... I've even been to restaurants, you, have, you order a grilled hake head. Right. I mean, you know, that's, that's what you have. I mean, they just adore the stuff they over there. They love it. So, because you're not, obviously, I've said chef or restaurateur, but you're not, that's, that's, you've got much more of an involvement than that, haven't you, in the world of fish, which is why you're here today as ambassador. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your story. Well, I, you... I, I started off life as an accountant, and uh, I did grew up, I did, I did. And I grew up, by the seaside, yeah. uh, my grandmother was a great cook and, and I would go off to the fishmongers with her and buy brown shrimps and we'd sit at home, we'd peel them and we'd make brown shrimp sandwiches and, you know, we'd pick crabs together and it was yeah. really great. So I was fascinated by that whole fish thing. Yeah. And uh, when I was kind of like mid to late 20s, uh, working in London, living in Bath, I just decided to give it all up and open a fishmonger shop. <laughs> And, and the reason I did it is the, the food revolution hadn't started in Britain. Right. You know, there was it wasn't even farmers markets. I remember so opening were, the first farmers market. You were with an Henrietta early adopter. Yeah, yeah, I was, and I, you know, there were butchers. There was a great cheese shop in Bath. Yeah, and I thought I want to sell fish, but I. You know, my experience of a fishmonger in the UK was a guy in a white jacket with a pretty smelly shop. And my experience of a yeah. fishmonger in Europe was this amazing kind of display of fish. So that's what I did. I opened like this a celebration place that was of like, fish. Yeah, a wonderful yeah. counter every day. Yeah. And, you know, I used to have, you know, Boxes of wild salmon, huge turbot, um, wow. tuna, halibut, you know, huge big 17, 18 kilo turbot, all these kind of things, which I don't see anymore. You no. know, I, I've witnessed the, the fishing out of, of, um, so first uh, of wild seen salmon. It just I've get, seen it yeah, just yeah. Get, get kind of worse, which is why I've always been passionate about um, using sustainably caught yeah. seafood. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a great thing to witness, yeah. but, it, but it is happening. But I think that there is such a movement, you know, within... The fishing industry, people like the MSC, to, to reverse all those trends. The MSC COD, which was sorry, the North Sea COD, North which was under threat three years ago. Become, Fantastic yeah. success story. How that, that fishery has been turned around. Now MSC certified, and people can eat, you know, our UK COD again with 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 kind and of real. And that's just confidence. because they've really worked at getting those fish stocks back up, 
changing yeah. the, the methods, working like changing with the way that they work. They've with been working science, with science. Yeah. I mean, you know, a long time ago, I remember when I first moved to Brixham. So I, yeah. I kind of had my fishmonger shop, taught myself to cook from Jane, Jane Grigson, Elizabeth David, <laughs> realised that a, a simple piece of fish with lemon juice and olive oil was the was most joyous the experience. Things, yeah. You actually didn't need to yeah. do much with it and thought I can be a chef. So I, I, I started cooking and opening yeah. restaurants and, and now I'm too old to cook. I run restaurants. So it's one of, the, one of, the, one of, one of, one of those things. <laughs> You're never too old to cook, are you? That's no, well, I cook point. at home. But, but I mean, that whole, you know, two or two, you know, 50, like two you know, it's not, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I occasionally do a double with the guys and yeah. I see, the, you know, I'm, I'm tired <laughs> now, you know, I've done it for 10 years or more. And, uh, but I love being in the kitchen. It's really great. But I, you know, I love that whole, um, that whole simplicity of it, but, it, but it really has shown me that, um, we need to look after our fish. And, uh, but that, that story we were just saying about the North Sea cod, that's a really good case in point because one point that came up was that, um, you know, that certain species have been demonised and we, we've been told, don't, don't eat this, don't eat this. There's no, mm. But it, it, it's not as simple as that, is it? You can't... It, no particular species is... Um, unsustainable. It's just. Well, I think I think the challenge is is there, there's there's a, there's a lot of there was a, you know five six years ago there was a huge rush yeah. in the media to communicate this huge problem. Charles Clover, um, great journalist, had made this this film called The End of the Line, which okay, was really yeah. highlighting to people the first time ever that you know there's danger. There was there. huge danger yeah. out there. I mean, this is really really bad news, but it's a global problem, not just yeah. a local problem. And then of course you had people on television saying cod is off the menu, don't eat cod. Yeah. And it was a travesty because I was going up to Norway where there was a million tonnes of MSC certified cod wow. at that time in a growing cod stock. We have always been a big importer of cod. We're the biggest importer of cod because in the world. Because we love cod. Because we love cod and we, chips. We love cod. We've always <laughs> eaten cod. We love white fish. We can't get away from that. That's, yeah. what, that's what we do. But frustratingly, that advice was given on the North Sea where the North Sea was under threat. But the North yeah. Sea only ever made up 2.5% of the world's cod quota. It was a very important fishery. Yeah. Um, but we should never be communicating to the public that cod is off the menu. No. What we should have been talking about is, for now, we've got to leave the North Sea alone, but what we've got to do is to buy it from a fishery that's been MSC certified, yeah. like the Barents Sea, where the Icelandics and the, and the Norwegians have incredible care for the environment. Yeah. And, uh, and we've been buying that fish for a number of years. So I think that kind of sent the hairs running yeah. uh, amongst everybody. Have we eaten the last fish? And there was all sorts of um, miscommunication. And nowadays we have a lot of um, chefs and food writers talking about alternative sustainable species. Yeah. And sadly, there, isn't, there aren't there any aren't. alternative sustainable no. species from the whitefish we love. What there are is some beautiful fish out there being landed off our shores, John Dory, Gurnard, Red Mullet, Dabs, um, Flukes, all these great things that we don't hear of. Yeah. But there is no scientific, scientific data to say that any of those species are any more sustainable than anywhere no. else. They are alternative species that we shouldn't waste and we should be eating. But they don't get wasted anyway. I no. mean, you know, our fish is in, you know, around the UK is of such good quality mm. that it's being sold to the Europeans because they value it more. It doesn't matter what it is, the Europeans want our fish because the fish is of such good quality. Is it possible to say I went down to Cornwall and um, I went to Newland or whatever and I was buying a fish off a, a fisherman down there? Or so? I mean, is it possible to get fish that isn't MSC certified that is sustainable? I mean, like a small a small yeah. day boat that they're going out and just doing their own catch? Yeah. Or... I think that the one thing I would say about British fishermen and our fisheries, they're incredibly well-managed. Yeah. So the sort of what our mantra at work and what I would share with other people is, look, yeah. if you're buying from a small fishery, a small fishmonger in the UK who's buying from a small Cornish, yeah. Scottish, Devon fisher fishery um, from any one of those big markets then the fish is well-managed yeah. and 
I feel sustainable. I think yeah. our fisheries are being well it managed. Sustainable. It might not it's have the certificate, but it's well managed because it's, it's an, on such a small scale that it can't really. Absolutely. Yeah. When I look out of my window and I see Brixham Fish Market and I see at Christmas time when all the boats are in, it's hard to imagine when I'm looking yeah. at this small pocket of boats that those boats can catch all the fish that's around our shore. I mean, the fishing effort is well balanced with the amount of fish that's there. Yeah. But I think when it comes to the high volume species, when we're importing hundreds of thousands of tonnes of cod, yeah. it's vital that those big fisheries have some kind of certification, which is what the MSC provides. Yeah. And that's, you know, our supermarkets nowadays don't even use it as a marketing perspective. Yeah. Why would you sell anything else but sustainable seafood? Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know... That's just the way it is. It's behavioural now. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the MSC have done a great job in, in, in making sure that we all, we all kind of operate in that way. We were saying earlier that the one, the one main confusion or that, a confusion that happens a lot is between the, the MSC and the MCS. So the MSC yeah. is the Marine Stewardship Council. The yes. MCS is the Marine Conservation Society. Um, they're both there to look after fish, but they've got slightly different agendas, I guess. Yeah, they're two different organisations, so they're both NGOs, and uh, the MSC are an independent uh, charity that yeah. certify fisheries based on scientific advice and give them accreditation to say that that fishery is sustainable. Yeah. The MCS, based on... Uh, scientific evidence are communicating to the consumer what species they should be eating. Yeah. Unfortunately, fish don't all live in one area. Yeah. <laughs> so when the MCS communicate that don't eat place, what they should be saying is don't eat place yeah. from fishery A, B, C and D, but it's okay to eat place from fishery, yeah. fishery E. And that's what they don't communicate. So there is further confusion when I walk around the market in Brixham and mm. uh, Newlyn and I see boxes and boxes of place, yeah. tons of it. And then the MCS saying it's on the red list. And I'm like, that is so frustrating mm. because it's on the red list in another part of the country, but not this part. And I think that that causes further um, it's confusion to It's people. a bit of a minefield for the consumer. And when we found that we might run a recipe with something and, and, you know, we'll get a complaint. But then when I go and look, there are, there are sustainable sources of it. So it's, it's a bit of a minefield for the consumer. I mean, what would you... What, what is best advice, basically? Is it just look for the... I, I would say there are two things. Whitefish, high-volume species. Always um, look for the Always look for the MSC label. You're yeah. likely to buy those fish in uh, your supermarket. Um, that's where those species are usually okay, sold. that's good. If you're going to your local fishmonger, yeah. then more likely your local fishmonger is dealing with the local fishery, dealing yeah. direct with boats. And I would feel more than comfortable that anything yeah. you buy from your local fishmonger um, is going to be uh, from a well-managed UK fishery, which I, in my mind, I would say was was a, a sustainable source. So the the answer at the end of the day is go and chat to your fishmonger. Like chat just to your fishmonger. sound him out, find yeah. out what he knows. If he tells you he's buying them from day boats from you know Brixham yeah. or he'll wherever, tell you, he'll, he'll tell you. show you. He'll um, you know. I mean, the one thing about our, the fishing industry since I've been in it for mm. twenty odd years, people in it really care yeah. about it. People are incredibly passionate. It's not a fast buck, is it? It's, it's not it's a fast really buck. It's hard intense. work. You, yeah. you 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 smell. You work in smelly environments. Yeah. You work odd hours. Yeah. But you do it because you totally love it. And therefore, if you go to an independent fishmonger. There are a million ways that that guy or that lady can go and earn money, but the reason they're doing it is because, because they, they love absolutely it. love it and yeah. they can't think of a better way. And I, um, Duncan and Sue, I, uh, who are some friends of mine, 
who I've worked with in bigger companies, they have uh, a fish shop, and I'm not sure where it is, but Duncan and Sue are two of the most passionate people uh, in seafood that, I, that I've met ever. Yeah. And they, have, they can't think of anything else they'd rather do. They spend their holidays going to look <laughs> at fishmongers, and they sell fish, and they love it, and they've yeah. got a successful business, and it's people like that that are genius, I think. Yeah. Tell us from a fishmonger's perspective, when you're when you're buying fish, what are the like key things to look for for like super freshness? So if you go into a fishmonger shop, hopefully he's going to have lots of whole fish there. Yeah. So uh, the first thing you look at is eyes. The yeah. eyes should look incredibly bright, not misty. They should be bulging out the head, not convex. Oh really? Yeah. And that's a real giveaway. Yeah. The other thing to do is, and I used to get lots of Japanese guys come into the shop. They would <laughs> they would just pick up the fish and open the gills, and they would <laughs> they would look at the gills and ask for a piece of tissue to to to, to clean their fingers but they were they were looking for bright red oh, bloody gills, bright red gills not sort yeah. of um brown oxidized gills and yeah. the other thing is you know the fish the, the, the flesh should be nice and firm yeah but if you see a fresh fish and you see an old fish it's so obvious what so a fresh obvious. fish looks like it's vibrant it's bright it's slimy yeah the smell in a fishmonger shop should smell like ozone like mm. the sea if you go into a fishmonger shop and it's fishy then the likelihood is that it's not clean. All the fish is, yeah. uh, is, is and you can there. you can buy a whole fish and ask a fishmonger to fill it up for you. You know, don't get scared of buying it because you can just buy it and then say, "Can you fill, fill it, it off?" Can you? Well, yeah. I think that is the big differentiator between <laughs> uh, from a supermarket and, yeah. uh, and 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 a fishmonger. Is that is a fishmonger is an artisanal craftsman, yeah. somebody that can prepare the fish, probably understand the fish, tell you everything about the fish. And a supermarket is a retailer. Yeah. Um, they're just they're just totally different experiences. And I used to think, and I used to encourage people look drive to the coast go and find a fishmonger by the coast where the fish is really fresh buy some for your freezer buy buy some that you're going to cook on the day and yeah. make a day of it yeah. i mean that's the whole joy of eating seafood yeah, not not just it. grabbing it and putting it in a basket um, yeah. it's sort of something more than that i think and what what's your favorite fish to eat Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a red mullet fan. And, you know, I, you know I, I, sometimes I switch between John Dory or Turbot, yeah. but I always come back to a red mullet. And, and interestingly, I like them only about 100 gram. I like the bigger ones too, but 100 to 125 gram fish. Okay. Um, dusting of flour and fried in oil. Nice. Um, just a shallow fried, maybe a little rosemary tucked in the belly. Yeah. And I sit there and eat that at home when the red mullet are in season at the end of the yeah. summer. And uh, I marvel at it as to what an utter joy that plate of food is every single time I eat it. Amazing. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Mitch. It's been really interesting. It's a pleasure. Thanks for chatting to me. Thank you. Hi, it's Alex here, and I'm at Carousel in Marlebone, where Bolivian restaurant Gusto is currently in residence. So Noma co-founder Klaus Mayer opened Gusto back in 2013 with the intention of starting a new Bolivian gastronomic movement. And this restaurant in Bolivia's capital, La Paz, is always in Latin America's 50 best restaurants list, and it always takes number one spot in Bolivia. And I'm chatting to head chef Mauricio Lopez about new Bolivian cuisine and some of his favorite ingredients to work with. So hello, Mauricio. Hello. <laughs> so gusto means flavor in the Andean Quechua language, Correct. is that right? Yes. And Quechua is a group of people whose like economy and culture revolves around agriculture, right? Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Correct. So, um, how would you sum up the flavors of this new Bolivian cuisine that you serve at Gusto? Well, there's so many flavors that it's really hard to sum it up. But the thing is, Bolivia has different climates. So we have the Andes, which mm -hmm. is very cold, and where we grow potatoes, we grow the quinoa, and all the the different cereals of the same family. We also have valleys where we grow different fruits like 
uh, peaches, grapes, and we have the Amazon where we get tropical ingredients. Wow. So it's different tastes, it depends yeah. the place, but in Gusto we try to mix everything up and do our own new cuisine. Okay, so you, you've got a lot of different altitudes and climates there, haven't you? And um, exactly. I can imagine there's a lot of traditional um, Bolivian food. And do, have you tried to just put twists on that and like a modern, like contemporary? Take yeah, there is a huge tradition of food in Bolivia. Like the culture is very next to the to the food, so everything is related. What we do is we we're inspired by the culture, by the flavors of the traditional food, and in Gusto we we make our own version of it. And what um, what are some traditional dishes in Bolivia? Yeah, we have, depends the place, where I come from, from La Paz, for example, we have chairo, which is a soup made with dried potatoes and okay. lamb, super nice for the winter. And do you use, like, traditional herbs in there? Yes, it has uh, one called quirquinha. Quirquinha? Yeah. Depends. What's that like? It's, it's very hard to explain. Okay. It's super new flavor. <laughs> so go to Bolivia. Yeah, you have to go there and taste is it, it. Is it like any other herb? I don't think so. No? It's very special, very strong. Okay. Is it like floral, aromatic? It's super aromatic, super okay. floral. And what yeah. do you use that in, like, to pair with usually? We put it on, a, yeah, we put it on a sauce called yajua, which okay. is the spicy sauce you will always find in every table in, in Bolivia. Okay, that's yajua. 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 Yeah. And what other ingredients it's does tomato, that have? Tomato, chile, and guacataya. Sometimes, and sometimes this other herb, quirquinha. Okay. Depends the place, yeah. Cool. Um, so you said that the climate in Bolivia is obviously very varied. So how does this create the unique produce? Like what kind of um, unique produce do you have? We have plenty of different products. For example, fish is super different. We don't use any fish from the sea, but we use from high-altitude lakes. Ah, okay. And we also use them from the Amazonic River. Oh, wow. So what so, kind of fish have you got there? Like, for example, we have one called paiche, which is the paiche. biggest um, freshwater fish in the world. Oh, it's really? Huge. Wow. Huge. Yeah, when we... How, how many, like, how big are we talking? We're talking about more than 100 kilos. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very, very big. Gosh, okay. And yeah. how do you serve that traditionally? Traditionally, it's, it's made in stews. Okay. There in the, in, in the Amazonas. Or it's cooked wrapped in, in banana leaves. Ooh. And it's how do nice. you, like, t you know, put a contemporary new Bolivian cuisine twist on that? We like to serve them raw. Raw? Raw, ah, yeah. Okay, so like in a ceviche? Like ceviche, like, uh, like a carpaccio. But we also serve it in the restaurant the classic way. Okay. Wrapped in a banana leaf. Ah, I see. With chilies and banana inside. A lot of flavor. Just We just give it some small twists to mm. the plate to get okay. more flavor. And that's basically it. Cool. And yeah. so, so that's the fish. And then, because um, Bolivia is landlocked, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad I got that yeah. right. <laughs> um, what about meat? What kind of meats do you um, use? We have different different kinds of meats, but the one that I like a lot is llama. Llama. Yeah, llama okay. is super good. And how do, is that? What does that taste like? What is the? It's very lean. Okay. A little bit gainy, but it's super good for tartar, for example. Okay. And to cook it just a little bit. Mm. It's yeah, very simple taste nice. actually it's not okay. that strange okay so it's super nice and lean and do you ha cook with alpaca we don't use alpaca no. that much in bolivia it's okay. more in peru okay so but llama and alpaca they're similar aren't they they're super similar are they yes. similar in taste as well as like the way they look alpaca is more gainy okay 
Cool. So you use Lamamore. And then what about fruit and veg? Like, I, I imagine you have a lot of yeah, fruit and tons. veg. Yeah, tons. <laughs> Any favorites? Fruits. There's one fruit that I love the most. It's called Tumbo. Tumbo. In English, the name is terrible. It's called banana passion fruit. Because oh, wow. <laughs> it's the same family of the passion fruit, but it's shaped as a banana, a small banana. Ah, so does it look like if you open it, does it look like a passion fruit inside? Exactly, yeah. Ah, oh, wow. And how does that um, compare to the taste of, say, I was going to say an English passion fruit, but yeah. I don't think we have English. <laughs> Marco, I mean, yeah. other, an, other one, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very like a, a maracuya, a passion, okay. passion fruit, a fruit. bit more bitter. Okay. So it's nice for cocktails, to, mm. for salads. Nice. We do ice cream with that or sorbet. It's super good. Uh, what I like about it is it grows everywhere in the city. Oh, okay. really? In La Paz, yeah. So every house has a tumbo tree somewhere. Oh, that's so nice. It's super in nice, In your backyard, yeah. just go out and pick it. And you, yeah. can you eat it just raw like a passion fruit? It's too strong. Oh, some, really? Yeah, some, okay. some like to eat it like that. Okay. But it's super nice to do cocktails. Yeah. With singani, for example, or national drink. Singani? Singani. Oh, what's that? Tell me it's what. Like a, it's <laughs> like a grappa, but made... Okay. Made only with Moscatel de Alejandria. Okay. It's similar to Peruvian Pisco. Right. And you make you make a cocktail with that and the... the and tumbo. And tumbo. Exactly. Yeah, it's super good. <laughs> cool. And what about, like, delving into the Amazon rainforest? Like, what kind of ingredients do you get from there? We will get so many ingredients from yeah, Amazon. Yeah, I can it's like, we get new ingredients almost every month through the really? door in the restaurant. It's wow. amazing. So it's super exciting. Always, we always have something different. That's so but cool. But fruits, it's like so many fruits. We get palmito, which is palm heart. Oh yes. They come from from the valleys, but also in the in the in the rainforest. And what what do they taste like? It's super silky, super yeah. nice. You can eat it raw. Nice. We, and how do you use that in the restaurant? Now we just grill it on the plancha with a little bit of butter and serve it with a banana balsamic vinegar. Oh, so is it quite savoury then? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Ah, I see. And um, you were saying that you have all these different um, ingredients from the Amazon, the Amazon that you um, get. Is that from like a forager or do you go out and choose them or do you have somebody who goes and discovers new fruit and veg and herbs and whatever else? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, forager, we do it in La Paz. And in La Paz, in the city, but if we have to go far away, we, then we have producers. Okay. They send us, like, for example, send us the fish. We talk with the community of fishermen, and they send us the fish, but mm. they also have fruits, and they send us that, or the banana leaves, or the other leaves that we use to cook. So it's a mix. Yeah. We have a good relationship with the, with the providers. Good. So your supplier in the Amazon, is, is that like a, a local who goes in, or is it somebody, you know, who, goes, who lives in the Amazon? No, it's a local. Okay. Like, so do they live like, in a village in the Amazon? Exactly. Amazing. And how far is the Amazon from, from La Paz? From La Paz, we can get it in, in bus in 12 hours. Okay, so it's, yeah. still, it's quite far. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So okay. a one-hour flight. Okay. Like to get into the center no, of the Amazonas, but you can get around in three hours maybe driving. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, it's, that just shows, to be fair, it just shows how, um, you know, how bigger country it is and how like, diverse exactly. the climate is. So um, we talked a little bit 
we touched on a little bit before about ceviche. Yeah. How does, I know every, uh, lots of Latin American countries claim that their yeah, ceviche yeah. was the first and the original, um, but you are serving a Peruvian, a Bolivian, sorry, Bolivian mm -hmm. ceviche on your exactly. menu. Um, how does that differ to say a Peruvian or an Ecuadorian ceviche? I think your ceviche, the, the main difference is that it's more like a soup. It has more more leche de tigre, which is the the sauce. Mm -hmm. The Peruvian one, it has less, but it's stronger. Okay. And do uh, you use any different um, ingredients and herbs? It's basic, the same ones, is basically. But we normally use fish, different fish, of course, no fish from the Amazonas or soup. fish from the from the lake. So it depends what fish we got, uh, how many, how much acidicness we put on it. Okay. It's less acidic. Acidic than the than the Peruvian one because it has more of the liquid. So you will need a, a spoon to finish uh, it up. Okay. Like you can drink the rest of the of the leche de tigre. So that's the that's the only difference. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> My mouth's watering now. Uh, so, so what other um, dishes um, do you have um, in the restaurant that sum up the new Bolivian cuisine? Because we talked about traditional dishes, yes. but what what do you think really encapsulates that new that new style? I think the Basic is using Bolivian ingredients, just with a, a new way of looking them. Okay. So we use quinoa, for example. Mm -hmm. We have a plate based on quinoa, and we we make like a quinoa tofu, which is kind of a cream. Okay. We ferment the quinoa and make a quinoa miso. So Ooh, there's that the, sounds good. Yeah, Japanese names maybe, but the, the ingredients are local. So that's the idea. We try to be as free as possible. Amazing. But use local ingredients. And what do you serve that with? We the, serve it only with quinoa. So, with, so with, the quinoa tofu is just it speaks for itself. Exactly. The, the quinoa with the miso super strong flavors. Mm -hmm. And then we serve the different types of quinoa. So the plate only has quinoa. So lots of different types of quinoa. Yeah, there is three um, main kinds. Three. The white okay. one, red and black. Okay. And um, what about puddings? About puddings, well, we have a great tradition of puddings in, in Bolivia, but the ones we do is also the same idea, using local products. For example, we're trying a, new, a mushroom that we always find in the markets, but we normally use it for soups or for pasta, or it's normally used for savory dishes, mm -hmm. and we made an ice cream. Mushroom ice cream. Yes. I think I might be tasting that yes. soon. My eyes. Exactly. I'm going to do that later. very exciting. And what, what do you serve with that? We put a basil oil. Okay. Nice. And Brazilian nuts. Ooh. Or we like to call it better Amazonic nuts. Amazonic nuts. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, I think that would be more correct. Fair. <laughs> well, so. I'm look, looking forward to trying that. Super. I can, I can imagine it's very umami. Lots of, you know, sweet and savory balance there. Exactly. Um... And so what about other Bolivian chefs that you look up to and like, what are they doing that's um, noteworthy elsewhere in, in the country? Well, Bolivian food culture is growing very fast, mm. at least this last years. There's two restaurants that I like, that I love a lot. This one is called Popular. Popular. They serve traditional Bolivian with a twist. And they're okay. super talented chefs and they, I love that place. They okay. only serve lunch. Only serve lunch? Only lunch, yeah. And they, How come? I don't know. They just <laughs> they decided to do that, but they, they're doing so well. Wow. And okay. they're in a very old house in the center of the city. Okay. Beautiful place. And what about in the country? Are there, is, there any, is there any other are there any other chefs that are doing things not in the capital? Yeah, there is. In, in Santa Cruz, there is a mo great movement. People doing a lot of things. Okay. Nice restaurant. And is that, again, this like new Bolivian cuisine movement? Or yes, exactly. They, are there any... Um, 
other influxes of like for example um Japanese because I know like Nikkei is mm -hmm. Peruvian Japanese isn't it or exactly. Japanese of course we have influence yeah influence from Peru's influence okay. for different parts uh, Italian we didn't got so much uh, immigration okay as the other countries around mm -hmm. but we have influence there's some Japanese uh, places in Santa Cruz for mm -hmm. example they make sake and Ooh. stuff like that I can imagine there's some great um yeah. sushi places because with using your uh, lake kind of trout like uh, yes. yeah what was it called again the fish the from the lake yeah or the paiche one the big one the big one paiche paiche yes okay cool right well so um i think we're running out of time but thanks very much for meeting me thank you and see you later see you later that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can still pick up a copy of our May issue now or go download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat. <laughs>